And as we go into our time in the Word this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 11. Uh, Revelation chapter 11 for our time of study in the Word this morning. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, and as we continue in our study through this book, we come this morning to Revelation 11, verse 15, and my goal today is to cover verses 15 through 19, and the title of the message this morning is, When the Seventh Trumpet Sounds. When the Seventh Trumpet Sounds. We've only got a few verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, and so that gives me a little bit of time to... Uh, vent a little bit um, and talk about a few things here on the front end of the message. It may surprise you to know that the book of Revelation and the way that we here at Cornerstone choose to read the book of Revelation has been in the news recently. On his TV show in early February, Bill Maher uh, was talking about QAnon conspiracy people with what he was calling their crazy beliefs, and he said that Christians have no right to criticize them because what we Christians believe is just as crazy. He spoke to Christians and said, have you ever read the book of Revelations? That's the Bible, your holy book. That's your holy book, Christians, and they've got stuff in that book you only see after the guy in the park sells you bad mushrooms. More recently, uh, just a couple weeks ago, Michael Luo wrote a thought-provoking article for the New Yorker magazine, and he was talking about how it could happen that many evangelicals would find themselves able to support Donald Trump, and how some of them could be involved in the Capitol Hill uh, riot. And in his article, he blames it on a long process that he calls the wasting of the evangelical mind. And as a part of that long process, he quotes from Mark Knoll, who points to a time when fundamentalists, and I quote, came to embrace a number of theological innovations, including premillennial dispensationalism, which he describes as a focus on biblical prophecies as a roadmap to the coming of the end times and a simplistic literal approach to the Bible. Well, you will actually find the words premillennial and dispensationalism in our church's doctrinal statement Premillennial dispensationalism represents a way of reading the Bible as literally as it seems the authors intended it to be read. So when we read in Revelation that Christ will return to the earth and then reign on the earth specifically for a thousand years, we here at Cornerstone take that to mean that Christ will return to the earth and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And when we read in the Old Testament of God's promises of Israel's future restoration and glory, we take those promises literally. 
rather than taking them as spiritually fulfilled in the church. And when we read in Revelation chapter 7 about 144,000 people that God seals from the 12 tribes of Israel, we take that to mean that God will seal 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel rather than taking that as a symbolic reference to the church in general. But evidently, according to some like Michael Luo and Mark Knoll, the more intellectual thing to do would be to read the book of Revelation in a non-literal way. And many Christians do that. In fact, whole denominations do that. And to give you an idea of how some Christian interpreters do this, let me have you look at Revelation 11, just verses 1, 2, and 3 that we looked at two weeks ago. In these verses, let me just read them to you. John says, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So we read these verses and we're left with some questions. What is the temple of God that John is to measure here? What is the outer court of this temple? What is the holy city that is tread underfoot? What is the 42 months that is referred to here? And what are or who are the two witnesses And what are the 1,260 days in which they prophesy? Well, here's how one commentator answers these questions. He understands the measured temple of God to be referring to the church, which is protected from apostasy and from God's wrath. He takes the unmeasured courtyard and the holy city in this passage to be the church as it is exposed to physical coercion, social contempt, and violence. And he takes the two witnesses to symbolize the whole church in its role as witnesses to God's truth. As for the meaning of the 42 months and the 1,260 days, well, good luck with that. Those time designations don't mean anything literal. They just represent the time period in which the church is given to minister on earth, however many centuries that might be. What we're left with then in just verses 1, 2, and 3 of Revelation chapter 11 is that nothing in these three verses is what the text says that it is. And in my opinion, it doesn't seem to be how John intends for us to understand him. When we looked at these three verses two weeks ago, we did what some would consider to be the anti-intellectual thing. We took the temple of God and the altar in verse 1 to be a reference to a literal physical temple of God and its altar that will be standing during the tribulation period to come. We took the court outside the temple and the holy city to be a reference to the outer court of that temple 
and to the city of Jerusalem itself. And we took the two witnesses to be referring to two particular witnesses that God will send during this time. And we took the 42 months to mean, write this down, 42 months. And we took the 1,260 days to speak of 1,260 days. And in reading these verses the way we do, we are understanding this text in a way that happens to be consistent with the premillennial dispensational perspective. We don't read the text this way that I just described because we are premillennial and dispensational. We are premillennial and dispensational because the text of Scripture seems to point us in this direction as we seek to understand it to the best of our God-given ability. Not every honest and earnest Christian will agree with us, and we wish them Godspeed in their interpretations, but this is how we here at Cornerstone will read our Bibles until we are persuaded that we should do otherwise. Along these lines, I hope you are not ashamed to take the Scripture at face value as it seems the authors of Scripture intended. The truth is that these things taught in Revelation are not the only strange and fantastical things that are taught in the Bible. For example, the Bible also teaches us that God became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Christ. The Bible teaches us that he was born of a virgin and that he walked on water and that he went about doing miracles of healing the sick and raising the dead and that he was killed upon a cross. The Bible teaches us that he was raised physically from the dead on the third day, although some would tell us we should interpret that story of his resurrection symbolically. And the Bible teaches us that one day Jesus is going to return to the earth riding on a white horse. And in the meantime, salvation comes to sinners only by believing in this one who was shamefully crucified upon a cross. Now that may all sound strange to our incredulous world, but sometimes truth really is stranger than fiction. And as Russell Moore says, as Christians, we don't run from strangeness. We instead learn to articulate it with clarity and with mission. Amen? In fact, a few years ago, Russell Moore was talking to a lesbian activist, and she told him that she found Christianity's sexual ethics to be impossibly weird. He replied by saying, yes, and we believe even stranger things than that. We believe a previously dead man is going to show up in the sky on a horse. And he's right, you know. And where do we learn that truth? We learn it in the book that Bill Maher calls the book of Revelations, where we have been learning a lot of other things about how history will reach its culmination in the person of Jesus Christ. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is my rant for the day. Thank you for letting me vent.
<clears throat> now to the sermon. <laughs> in Revelation 5, just to do a little bit of review, uh, in Revelation 5, the Apostle John is ushered into the future, and he sees Jesus take the book of human destiny from the hand of God, and then in chapter 6, he sees Jesus breaking six of the seals of this book, which represent various judgments upon the world that usher history toward the second coming of Christ. In chapter 8, Jesus breaks the seventh seal, which contains seven trumpets of judgment. A few weeks ago, we studied through Revelation 8 and 9, and we saw six angels sound their trumpets, resulting in a third of the earth burned up, a third of the seas destroyed, a third of the fresh water supply rendered deadly to drink, the heavenly lights being darkened by a third, a horde of demonic locust creatures being released from the abyss and tormenting men for five months, and then with the sixth trumpet, 200 million demonic soldier creatures riding from the east, spewing fire and smoke and sulfur from their mouths and killing one-third of the world's population. Next up is the seventh and the final trumpet. But what will happen with this seventh trumpet will be so intense and so climactic that in chapter 10, God makes John, the apostle, undergo a special commissioning ceremony before he's even allowed to witness the things associated with this trumpet. The angel who appears to John in chapter 10 speaks of the seventh trumpet and tells John in verse 7, look at what it says in verse 7, that in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. This angel then has John eat the book containing the revelation of these things, which John eats and finds to be bittersweet. Then at the end of chapter 10, John is told that he must prophesy again concerning many peoples and kings and tongues and nations. But then we come into chapter 11 and realize that ground zero of John's prophesying will be Jerusalem. We know this because the camera immediately zooms in on the Jerusalem temple, and we see John being instructed to measure this temple, but to leave the outer court unmeasured because that is given to the Gentiles who will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. This opening shot in the chapter of the Jerusalem temple and the city of Jerusalem informs us that Jerusalem is taking the center spot on the world stage as prophetic developments unfold from here. We then saw in Revelation 11, 3 through 14, how God sends two witnesses to prophesy for three and a half years, at the end of which the Antichrist will make war against them, he will overcome them, and he will kill them. And he will leave their dead bodies lying in the street while the wor world looks on and celebrates. But their celebration we saw two weeks ago will not last long 
After three and a half days, God will breathe the breath of life into these two witnesses, and they will stand on their feet. God will call them to heaven, and these men will ascend to heaven in a cloud while the world looks on. In that very hour, we learn in chapter 11, a great earthquake will shake the earth, destroying a tenth of the city of Jerusalem and killing 7,000 inhabitants of that city. As for the rest of the inhabitants of that city, we are told that they will be terrified and give glory to God and experience what seems to be genuine conversion to Christ. After these things happen, around the same time that the sixth trumpet is running its course, John is told in verse 14, look at what the text says, the second woe, which is the sixth trumpet, is past, and behold, the third woe, which is the seventh trumpet, is coming quickly. And this is where we left off the last time that we were in Revelation. The sixth trumpet is done. There's now one trumpet that remains. We're going to see it sounding in verse 15 this morning, setting off a grand finale of events that will finish the mystery of God and bring history to its culmination. And the description that we find in the final verses of Revelation 11 is merely the start of all that happens once the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. So here's how we'll break down our study of these verses. We'll observe five initial events, five events that occur when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. And the first of these is that heavenly voices proclaim the reign of God and his Messiah. Heavenly voices proclaim the reign of God and his Messiah. Observe what John says in verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. If these words sound familiar to some of you, they come from the Hallelujah Course in Handel's Messiah, which I thought about singing to you this morning, but was discouraged from doing that. As for the speaking these words in this passage, we don't know who they belong to. All we know is that whoever is speaking here is in heaven, and when they speak, John says that they speak in loud voices. This is actually the tenth time, the tenth time in the book of Revelation that we have seen the word loud in this book so far, often describing the way people speak in heaven. And we're reminded once again that heaven is not a place for uttering truth in whispered tones. It's a place where truth is spoken out in the open and loudly and boldly. As for what these voices say, John tells us that they were saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, some of your translations say kingdoms, plural. 
rather than kingdom singular, but the point is the same. Yes, there are multiple kingdoms of this world composed of various languages and cultures and governments, yet there is a sense in which all of them together compose a single kingdom that is under the rule of Satan. And right now, the seventh trumpet is setting in motion a series of events that will culminate in the kingdom of this world becoming the kingdom of Jehovah and of his Christ. And this is now so imminent that it is spoken of by these voices as being already accomplished. It's as good as done. But we read these words and we're left maybe a little bit confused I mean, is it not true that the kingdom of this world has always belonged to God? The answer is yes, absolutely. And God has freely demonstrated his sovereignty throughout history by raising up kings and removing them at will and by turning the hearts of kings in whatever direction he would have them go in order to serve his purposes But we also know from the Bible that there is a sense in which God has let these kingdoms have their day and be under Satan's sway. But a major shift we learn in the Bible happens at the resurrection of Christ when God subjected all things to Jesus. When Jesus said to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Yet even still... After Christ's resurrection, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 8, in subjecting all things to Christ, God left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So we still, even today, pray for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven But when, according to this passage, the seventh trumpet sounds, this prayer will be on the verge of being answered. Loud voices in heaven will say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ or of his Messiah. And when it is given to him on this occasion, he's not going to refuse it. He will receive it. He will take what is rightfully his and assert his reign. And he will reign not just for four years or for 40 years, but forever. And not just for voices say he will reign forever and ever. And we as Christians need to believe this truth and speak it loudly. All those who believe in Jesus Christ will eventually be shown to be on the right side of history. Amen? And they will thrill when this moment arrives for this angel to sound the seventh trumpet, and they will rejoice to hear these voices speaking these words in heaven. But these voices are not the only ones who will speak when the seventh angel sounds. And this brings us to the next event that happens when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. Let's word it this way. Number two, the 24 elders thank God for beginning 
to assert his reign. The 24 elders thank God for beginning to assert his reign. Observe what John says beginning in verse 16. The text says, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Now, we encountered these 24 elders back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, where we saw them seated on thrones around the throne of God. And we were told that they were clothed in white garments, they had golden crowns on their heads. And when we first met these elders back in chapter 4, we concluded that they are likely saints of God who have overcome and are now reigning in heaven with God. And here we learn from John that when the seventh trumpet sounds, that these 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. This is actually now the third time so far in Revelation that we have seen these elders falling off their thrones and falling before God in worship. In fact, back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, John tells us that the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. In Revelation 5, Jesus takes the book of human destiny from the hand of God, and John tells us in Revelation 5, 8, that when he had taken the book, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. And write this reference down. In Revelation 19, verse 4, we're going to find these elders falling down again. These glorified saints who have been given such tremendous glory by God just can't seem to stay upright. Even here in Revelation 11, when the seventh trumpet sounds, these elders fall on their faces and worship God. By their posture, they're expressing full surrender to God. They're overwhelmed with love for God. They're happily vacating their thrones and yielding their thrones to Him. These elders have been given these thrones by God to sit on and to rule from, yet they would happily abdicate these thrones and give them all to God. And this ought to tell us how amazing God is that he would provoke this kind of response from these 24 elders who behold him as they do. And when they, the elders, worship God on this occasion of the seventh trumpet, listen to what they say in verse 17. John tells us that they are saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. They're giving thanks to God, viewing him as the source behind all of the developments that are about to come upon the world. They praise him as the Lord God. They speak of him as the Almighty, speaking of his irresistible power to do whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases, however he pleases, with a power that is irresistible. He has no rivals or competitors. 
And there is no power anywhere that can successfully keep God from bringing to pass anything that he wants to bring to pass. These elders also speak to God and describe him as the one who is and the one who was, celebrating the fact that the God who exists in this very moment is the same God who always was, immutable and eternally existing as God. As for what God is doing in the present, these elders say, we give you thanks because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. God is now on the move and in the final stages of taking power from the rebel kingdoms of this world, he's beginning to assert his reign. The nations of the world despise the reign of God But these elders rejoice in God's reign, and they rejoice in seeing him beginning to assert his reign over the kingdoms of the world. Now, technically, when you think of the timeline of human history, there's, at this point, there's still another three and a half years before Christ returns and sets up his reign upon the earth. But if you view all of human history as a 24-hour day, we're right now in the final minute before the midnight hour, and it's on the cusp of all of this that these 24 elders are giving thanks to God for these things. But this is not all they give thanks to God for. This leads us to the third event that takes place when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. Number three, The 24 elders thank God for his judgment of the wicked and the righteous. The 24 elders thank God for his judgment of the wicked and the righteous. The elders are not just aware of what is now happening in heaven, but they've also been watching what is happening on earth. In verse 18, they speak to God and say, And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. The Greek word that is translated enraged is the same word that is translated wrath. Literally, we can translate these elders as saying, and the nations were wrathful, and your wrath came. These elders understand that at their core, these nations of the world are wrathful against God, and they rage against him. And in the process, they make the mistake of inflaming God's wrath against them. The words that these elders are speaking are drawn from Psalm 2, where the psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That's Psalm 2, verses 1, 2, and I think 3. And these 24 elders are observing the same thing during the tribulation period as the nations rage against God. They've just seen how the Antichrist has made war against the two witnesses and killed them because he hated their Messiah. These elders now see how the nations are beginning to trample underfoot 
the holy city of Jerusalem, even now. And now this seventh trumpet blows, heralding the wrath of God that is now coming upon the world with a vengeance. And this is going to happen in fulfillment of Psalm 2, where God sees the nations raging and plotting against him. And the psalmist responds by saying, listen to these words, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. We've already seen that God's wrath is being poured out on the earth during the first half of the tribulation period. But now the wrath of God will be poured out as never before during the second half of the tribulation period, the final three and a half years, as God pours out seven bowls of his wrath upon the world. And these bowls will unleash on the world with such ferocity that when they are finished, the kingdoms of this world will lie in ruins. And the only thing left will be for Christ to descend from heaven, treading the winepress of God's wrath and breaking the nations with a rod of iron and setting up his reign upon the earth. And these 24 elders are not embarrassed by the wrath of God and his Messiah. They're literally in this passage thanking God for the fact that he's finally bringing his wrath upon the wicked of this world. You know, there are some people today who are embarrassed by the doctrine of the wrath of God. They're embarrassed by the Bible's teaching on the wrath of God. There are some churches that will not even sing the song in Christ alone because the wrath of God is mentioned in that song. Others will sing that song, but they take the word wrath out and replace it with the word love. Some try to relegate God's wrath to the Old Testament. They teach that the wrathful God of the Old Testament gives way to a God of love and mercy in the New Testament. But the truth is that God's wrath is put on greater display in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation than we see anywhere in the Old Testament. If you truly take the Bible for what it says, there is no getting around the fact that the God of the Old and the New Testament is a God of love and wrath. And by the way, if you only want a God of love who has no wrath, you really ought to think about that and be careful what you wish for. Because a God who has no wrath is a God who does not love very much at all. I mean, think about it. Do you really want a God who feels no wrath against the atrocities committed in the Holocaust? Do you really want a God who feels no wrath against those who exploit and abuse children? You really want a God who feels nothing but benign tolerance toward the evils of this world? Such a wrathless God would be a God who doesn't know the first thing about love, right? Honestly, you take away God's wrath from your theology 
and you have just created a loveless God. The Bible teaches us that God is love and he is a God of wrath precisely because he is a God of love. God loves righteousness so much that he feels a proportionate wrath against unrighteousness. He loves his people so much that he feels a proportionate wrath against anyone who messes with his people. God loves mankind so much that he feels a proportionate wrath against anyone who dishonors any one of his image bearers. God loves the earth that he created so much that he's wrathful against those who corrupt the earth with their sin. And God loves his son, Jesus Christ, so much that he feels a furious eternal wrath against those who refuse to bow to his son and believe in him. As Christians, we should not be embarrassed by the doctrine of the wrath of God. These 24 elders are not. In fact, in this passage, they're literally thanking God for responding with his wrath against the raging of the nations. And we ought to join them in their thanksgiving. But these 24 elders do not just praise God for his wrath, but also for his discerning judgment. They continue in verse 18 and say, And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great. The dead that these elders are referring to here are probably the wicked dead, given the fact that the dead are mentioned in contrast to God's bondservants and saints who are rewarded. So the dead, we can understand to be those who are spiritually dead and also physically dead. And these elders are thanking God that the time has come for them, even on the other side of death, to be judged by God. But these elders are also thanking God for the fact that the time has come for God to reward, look at that word, to reward his bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear his name. Such people will fare well in the judgment. God will not treat them according to their sins, but he will give them reward for the good that they did with the enabling grace that he had given to them. And notice that the 24 elders say here that God will reward all these righteous souls who feared him. Look at this, the small and the great. Their greatness and their smallness will not matter in the judgment before God. God will give them eternal life based on their faith in Christ and he will reward them based on the righteous deeds that they did in service to him. And perhaps you are not one of the great ones in God's kingdom, at least in your mind. Perhaps you think you are the smallest of the small in God's kingdom. Well, fair enough. Do you fear God? Do you believe in Christ? If so, this passage assures you that you will be included in the rewards that God is giving to those who belong to him. Going back to the theme of God's judgment of the wicked dead, these elders are thanking God for the fact that the time has now come for him, look at the end of verse 18, to destroy those who destroy the earth. 
And when these elders speak of those who destroy the earth, they're not speaking of people who use plastic water bottles and did not recycle. He's speaking of those who polluted and destroyed the earth with their sin. Think about it. Adam and Eve's sin brought death to the world and a curse to the ground. The Canaanites were driven from the land of Canaan because they polluted the land of Canaan with their immoralities and their murders. Later in Revelation 19, verses 1 and 2, mention will be made of Babylon the Great. And the text says, which did corrupt, same Greek word that is used here, which did corrupt the earth with her porneia, with her fornication. The great sin of Babylon was that she destroyed the earth with her immorality and her murders. So these 24 elders praise the Lord for the fact that this seventh trumpet is now sounding because they know what it involves, what it's going to lead to, and what it involves is God rewarding the righteous and destroying the wicked and judging them with perfect justice. And we can thank God for this even now. Though wickedness prevails in our day, though it seems to us that the wicked prosper without consequence and even prevail over the righteous, there is coming a day when every wrong is going to be made right and when God will give the wicked what they are due and when he will vindicate the righteous and reward them in a way that will leave all of us more than satisfied. The seventh angel here has sounded his trumpet, and we're going to see, beginning in chapter 15, a detailed account of all that the seventh trumpet will unleash upon the earth. But for now, John seems to want us to witness how the blowing of this trumpet impacts heaven. And provokes the 24 elders to praise and to thanksgiving. But the praise of these 24 elders is not the only thing that happens when the seventh trumpet blows. And this leads us to the fourth event that takes place after the blowing of this trumpet. Number four, the temple of heaven is opened and the ark of the covenant appears. The temple of heaven is opened and the ark of the covenant appears. Observe what John sees happening in verse 19. He says, and the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. This is such a beautiful scene. In all likelihood, the temple of God on earth has now been defiled by the Antichrist. But the heaven, which the earthly tabernacle was patterned after, is undefilable by the Antichrist. And here John is saying, the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. This open temple means that even during this time of God's awful wrath, he's still providing a way for believers in him to come into his presence. This open temple also seems to imply that God is on the move, going forth to get his people and to gather them into his eternal sanctuary in a most remarkable way. The next thing that happens in verse 19, John says, is that the ark of his covenant appeared. 
in his temple. And let's not lose sight of how explicitly Jewish this is. The Ark of the Covenant is the box that represents God's covenant with Israel and his presence with them. Certainly, his covenant with Israel yields benefits to all of the nations around the world, but this ark is first and foremost an emblem of God's covenant with Israel. And I love what J.B. Smith says when he teaches that the ark of the covenant that is appearing here denotes God's return with mercies to Israel and his intervention on her behalf in the dark days of the second half of the tribulation. Keep in mind that the earthly Ark of the Covenant contained the tablets of the covenant that God had made with Israel. It contained a jar holding the manna that God had provided for Israel through her wilderness wanderings and Aaron's rod which budded. All these things represented God's gracious provision for the people of Israel and his presence with his people and his promise to be eternally faithful to them. Keep in mind also that blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. So this Ark also represents atonement for sins which Christ has provided through his death. So for John, as a Jew, to see the heavenly temple opened and to see the Ark of the Covenant would give him absolute assurance that God is on the move and ready to show his faithfulness to Israel and to fulfill his promises to them. Upon describing this vision, John tells us about one more thing that happens when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. Thus far, every impact of the sounding of the seventh trumpet has been in heaven, but now we see it exploding toward earth. This is the final event we'll look at this morning. Number five, a storm of lightning and thunder and quaking and hail falls upon the earth. A storm of lightning and thunder and quaking and hail falls upon the earth. In the second half of verse 19, John says, And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. These words need very little commentary from me. When you first read these words, though, you sort of have the impression that maybe John is witnessing these phenomena in heaven. This would not be unprecedented because we know that he's already seen lightning around the throne of God and heard peals of thunder in heaven. But the earthquake, and the Greek word here is seismos, and a great hailstorm makes it obvious that these phenomena are manifesting themselves on earth. Where on earth are these things happening? In the context, it could be that this lightning and thunder and earthquake and hailstorm are happening in Jerusalem and perhaps over the land of Israel, but they may not be limited only to these locations. It's possible that these phenomena are being experienced all over the world. And I would imagine that the people experiencing all of this would feel like this is something of a grand finale. Little realizing that this is just a harbinger of what is about to fall upon the earth. 
which we're going to see described for us beginning in chapter 15 all the way to the second coming of Christ. We'll stop here for this morning. There's a lot for us to process in these few verses, and we pointed some of these things out as we've worked our way through this passage. More than anything else, we learn in this text that God is God Almighty, that He is in control of human history. The raging of the nations is no threat to God. He will meet their wrath with His own wrath, And his wrath will burn them up and blow away their kingdoms like chaff. And they will realize very quickly that their arms are too short to box with God. One day God will judge the wicked in his wrath. Even on the other side of their dying. And he will reward the righteous in his grace. And one day God's kingdom will come. And his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer you pray will be answered one day when the seventh trumpet blows. Meanwhile, his heavenly temple stands open to all who are willing to enter into that temple through the blood of Christ. And this temple is the only safe haven from God's wrath. We learn in this passage and through the book of Revelation that the day of God's wrath is coming and that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God and to fall under the wrath of his Messiah, Jesus Christ. But the temple is opened and God stands ready to welcome anyone who's willing to enter his temple through the sprinkled blood of Jesus that was shed for them at the cross. And I ask you this morning, do you believe in Jesus. Do you believe in him? Many of you have heard of Jordan Peterson. He's a bright-minded clinical psychiatrist who is not a Christian, but Doug Wilson recently said that Jordan Peterson is in danger of becoming one. During an interview several days ago, Jordan Peterson began talking about Jesus Christ, and he expressed the fact that on some level, he finds himself believing in the physical existence of Jesus in human history. He says, and I quote, I probably believe that, but I'm amazed at my own unbelief, or at my own belief, and I don't understand it, he said. He then begins to talk about how the narrative world and the objective world seem to touch one another in the person of Jesus Christ. And then with tears, he breaks down and he says this, but I don't know what to do with that. It seems to me to be oddly plausible, but I still don't know what to make of it, partly because it's too terrifying to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it, unquote. To Jordan Peterson's credit, he understands what a transcendently powerful person Jesus is. He understands how powerful the biblical narrative of Jesus' death and resurrection and future coming is. 
He gets the fact that no one can believe in Jesus and not be radically transformed by that belief. He gets the fact that no one should take belief in Jesus lightly. But what he fails to appreciate is that the Bible tells us what happens to a person when they believe in Jesus. And it's nothing to fear. When a person believes in Jesus, coming to him with their sins and confessing their sins, repenting of their sins, and crying out to Jesus for salvation, Jesus responds to them in mercy. He makes them a child of God. He forgives them of all of their sins and gives them the gift of God's Holy Spirit and makes them a new creation in Christ that will one day live in heaven with God forever. And guys, those things are not things to be terrified by. But yeah, when you do believe in Jesus, you will be changed and you will lose control of your life and yield that control to him. Losing our personal autonomy is a terrifying thing for us to contemplate. But as terrifying as that is to contemplate, is it not far less terrifying than us being in charge of our own lives? The scariest thing for me to contemplate is me being in control of my life. Jordan Peterson should be terrified not to believe in Jesus. And you should too. If you have never believed in Jesus, if you have never called upon his name, I would urge you to look to Jesus and believe in him this morning, even right now where you are seated. Believe in him. Put your trust in him as your Lord and only Savior and find refuge in him. If you do that, when the seventh trumpet blows, you will be thrilled and experience not a shred of terror, but only joy. And how we look forward to that day. Let's go to the Lord and pray and ask him to work in our hearts as only he can. Lord God, we, we stand in great need of you. You are the Lord of history, and we are somewhere on the timeline of history. And though we do not know what tomorrow holds or 10 years from now holds, we know that you hold tomorrow in the palm of your hand. You hold us in the palm of your hand. And we know that all things that are happening are happening only because they've been sovereignly allowed by you because they serve your purposes of bringing history towards its great culmination in the person of Jesus Christ and in his second coming and the establishment of his reign upon the earth. And we will look back and all of this will make so much sense. And every one of us individually, Lord, are on a march to judgment. All of us will stand before you and your Messiah one day. And we will be judged. And for those who have not believed in Jesus, they will be judged. 
accordingly. And for those of us who have believed in Jesus, Lord, we are thankful that we will experience your mercy on that day of judgment. But I pray that you would help us to be gripped by the heaviness of the things that we're seeing in the book of Revelation. That these truths would would shape our hearts and our minds and our words and the ways that we act, the ways that we engage people for Christ. We're not just here to play church or to live a comfortable life, but you have placed us here in this time for a reason. You've raised us up to represent you and to be your champions in this day, knowing of these future things, knowing that a moment will come when this seventh trumpet will sound. And how will we wish that we had lived our lives when that moment comes. We open our hearts to you, Lord, and ask that you would do your full good pleasure in us. Help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is you who works in us, both to will and to do of your good pleasure. And if there's any here this morning, Lord, who have never come to Jesus in repentant faith in him, Touch their hearts and draw them beautifully to yourself. And may they know the heart of the Lord Jesus who says, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast them away. May they find refuge in him. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.